let's gather back together. So I, I, last year after our pulpit conference, we got lots of feedback. Um, so if you have registered, be prepared. You will probably get a link to a survey after the conference is all over. We want your honest feedback. One of the reasons we added a Friday service, a third day, was because of the feedback we received. Uh, one of the other things we received feedback on was some of the topics in the day sessions and teaching sessions wanted to be more practical. So it looks like all of us jumped on board that this year. Um, I want to share with you a little bit. Thank you for the call for, for talking about crafting a sermon. I want to kind of focus the lens a little more and kind of go a little bit closer to that instead of a broad overview. And um, I want to kind of talk to you for the next little bit about some a couple of specific aspects of preaching and the sermon. And I'm just going to title this session, Driver's Ed for Preachers, because I want to ask you what's driving your sermon. Um, I don't have a text, Sister Stormy, so thank you for the mood music, though. Appreciate it. Driver's Education, Driver's Ed, teaches individuals the basics of driving. How many took Driver's Ed? It's not required in the state of Missouri um, anymore. <clears throat> we just, and St. Louis has quite the reputation for driving. Driver's Ed, is, it's, I never took it either. Um, I just started illegally driving when I was about 15, 15 and a half, and got my experience that way. Um, but Driver's Ed teaches the individual the basics of driving. Good judgment, safety, defensive driving. The foundational laws of the road so that when you finally do take that driver's test and are given a driver's license, you feel confident while driving, knowing that you've mastered the basic elements of safe driving. But as people gain more driving experience, they build on the basics. Um, now you approach, as you've been driving for a long time, now you approach a yield sign. You don't really think, okay, now I'm supposed to kind of come to a slow stop, make sure nobody's... nobody's uh, coming my way, and then I could just kind of ease on, or some of us kind of roll through the yield sign because we don't see anybody coming. Uh, but we don't think about what we read in the driver's ed book or the Department of, of, of uh, Transportation, the, whatever book they gave you to study. for. We don't think about all those, but we just know them. They're just in us because it's foundational to learning how to drive. We don't think deeply about those basics really anymore. It's just become natural. We just drive uh, because we've learned that. It becomes second nature. So for the next few minutes, I want to look at some foundations of the sermon. Now, many of those who sit, students that are here that sit in my classes, a lot, hopefully a lot of this is familiar. Um, hopefully it's recognizable. Um, but I do want to echo Brother Colthorpe. Um, this is coming from my subjective lens also, um, but I think it's healthy to hear from different way different people do it. I'm not talking about the whole craft of the entire sermon, uh, but I want to talk about a few things. And some of these things, um, not all of us will see eye to eye on. I, I major in some areas of, 
of sermon foundation, I think, are really very important. Other people might think, oh, it's not really that important. I prefer to think of it this way. So I want you to kind of take it through that filter. But some of these things that I do teach, I, I, I do believe are foundational. And I do teach our um, introduction to preaching students, preaching practicum students. Some of these classes, I, I do teach this. I want them to master certain foundational elements that I believe are very important. But I also tell them, if you are still building your outline or your sermon the way I've told you to do it five or ten years from now, then I, there's not really a whole lot of growth going on. So I do believe you, you've got to find your voice the way you uh, speak, the way you preach, the way you build a sermon. But I want you to have some foundational things. So I want to ask you, what's driving your sermon? Are you text-driven or topic-driven? Um, this has, I, I guess, Brother Colthorpe kind of mentioned exegesis, eisegesis. I could kind of take it this way. Um, are you, do you let the Bible drive your sermon, or do you get an idea? And I know Brother, Brother Gleason was talking about it kind of tongue-in-cheek. As an exhorter, I get an idea, then I go try to find Scripture that helps support my idea. And if I can't find one, I'll, I'll kind of re-straighten out the Scripture to make it fit my idea. That's what I kind of mean Hereby, and he was tongue in cheek. He doesn't really do that. He was kind of just joking. But uh, the, do we let the Bible drive our sermon? Are we preaching biblical messages, or do we get caught up in, "Wow, that was a cool story, cool idea, man"? I hope there's Bible to back that up because I'm going to preach that. And then, sadly, there's been a lot of people that have done that, and in turn have completely. Cons- misconstrued scripture and have created false ideas and false doctrines um, it, it, it has happened and we've got to be very careful as Brother Colthorpe said this is a sacred task we have been given and we we must make sure that we are preaching God's word and letting the scriptures drive the sermon okay now the majority of sermons should be birthed should start in Study, reading, meditation on God's Word, not news outlets, books, or even other sermons. I know I'm going to make some strong statements. Some of you can disagree. That's fine. Uh, this, I, I believe that the majority of our sermons ought to be birthed from Scripture. And I'm talking about um, birthed out of my personal devotion. I wanted to bring some today, and I didn't. My students hear it a lot. I, I love the ESV journal Bibles. They're, they're little paperback Bible is that each, each book of the Bible comes in its individual paperback, except for some of the smaller books that are, that are kind of combined because they're, you know, Philemon's 20-something verses. Uh, Habakkuk's very short. So they come kind of come combined. But I love it because on the left-hand side is the ESV text. On the right-hand side is just lined blank paper. And I love my personal devotion, personal Bible reading. I love reading through that because I will, I, because it's not so much about me checking off the, the, the box that says I've read my scriptures for the day. I just want to immerse myself in the Word. So I will read through on the left-hand side, and I will read slowly. Some days I don't get through more than about 20 verses because I just, wow, that was good. I want to go back and read it again. 
Yeah, well, I want to go back and read, and I just immerse myself in it. And you, you will see many of these journal Bibles I've just circled, I've underlined, I've drawn uh, arrows out to the right, and I'll write thoughts of what that scripture meant, what God's saying there, what the author's saying there. And then under that, I'll, that this reminds me of this in my life, or reminds me of this in the life of the church, or make me think if I'm going to preach, I might want to say that. And the right-hand side of the page, many of those gets filled up with thoughts and ideas. So... I, m- the majority of my sermons are birthed from that. Just that personal devotion time, drawing from that. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be inspired from other sermons. It doesn't mean you can't, uh, I, I teach, we need to be widely read as preachers. We need to read all kinds of books, from fiction to nonfiction to biography to history. Uh, all, we, need to, we need to be well-rounded as preachers. Now, the majority of our time ought to be spent in the Word, but... We ought to, as a preachers, we have to be reading. We have to be, and we need to be widely read. So it doesn't mean that you can't become inspired for a sermon by hearing the news or reading a book or even listening to other people's sermons. I've been inspired many times with sermon ideas and thoughts from listening to other people. But that ought not be the weekly well we draw from. I need a sermon, so I'm going to go listen to a podcast, try to get inspired from some podcast preacher i'm gonna uh, go pick up max lucado and and try to find now i've done that before but i don't think that ought to be the weekly well we draw from i think we ought to as students of the word brother call we ought to we ought to immerse ourselves in the word and from there come sermon if you immerse yourself in the word You read the word, you memorize the word, you meditate on the word, you spend time daily in the word. You are not going to be lacking most of the time for sermons. There will come those moments where I just don't know what to preach. That's when I go back, pick up an ESV study Bible and go read through the scriptures that I've been reading and meditating on and see what I've been, the Lord's been talking to me about The importance of letting the text prompt the message to get started out on the right footing. Letting the text inform and drive the sermon, not the sermon inform and drive the text. That's important. And so I want to share with you a a, a definition that I have created. Uh, It's right there behind me. Biblical sermons begin with Scripture. They're shaped by Scripture. They're anchored to Scripture, and they clearly communicate Scripture's message. And I want to break that down for the next 25 minutes or so. It's the text that drives the message of the sermon. Number one, biblical sermons begin with Scripture. They are born out of Scripture. So back talking about selecting a text or a passage. How do I do that? Very often... It will come from your personal devotion. There has been some scripture, some passage, text that has been just eating away at you, been moving, stirring inside of you because just out of your personal devotion, you've just been drawn to a certain area of text and it begins to be birthed out of there. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do very similar. I'm going to talk a little bit about the sermon I preached last night, kind of show where some of these things came from. We'll be a little transparent here. Um, 
for the last several months, and it wasn't just because I was trying to find something to preach for pulpit conference, knew I was preaching, but I started just my daily devotion, my reading, my, um, I got really hung up in the first four chapters of 1 Samuel. Then several months ago, and just, I just, every time I would read it, I, just, there was just something about it. it just, things were jumping off the page, and, and just watching it, the story I heard as a kid in Sunday school. You know, hearing about Samuel laying on, his, laying on the pallet there in the tabernacle, and hearing this voice, and, and, and getting up and going to Eli to, to did you call me? And he meant that whole, the whole calling, it just it fascinated me as a kid. And it just started, there was just something about this. I just got caught up in the narrative and the details in 1 Samuel. And, and again, it wasn't because I was searching for something to preach at pulpit conference. It was just part of my daily reading and devotion. And I, so I spent, I spent weeks in the first four chapters of 1 Samuel. Again, I'm not so much interested in checking off the box that I've done this, and, and, and now I'm through this book, and now I'm through that book, and then, well, I've read through the Bible in 60 days. That, that's, that's good. That, that, that's, that's a good thing for some people, but for me, I want to retain a little more than just checking off boxes, okay? I think if you need that discipline in your life, then get some boxes to check off, but I, I want to I retain something. And so, so I, will spend, I will spend a long time in a passage until I feel like, okay, I'm ready to move on to something else. And I'll pick up another journal Bible and I'll read through some other portion of Scripture. And so I was really drawn to the narrative, drawn to the details, and I noticed I started spending a lot of time there. Um, so here, here's kind of what I do in, in a lot of my sermons is I will... I will be drawn to a text, drawn to a passage, and many times could be several chapters. It might just be a few short verses, but usually several chapters. And I will begin to kind of to the side of that in the journal Bible. You could do this. You could pull the scriptures off the computer program and, um, and pull them into uh, some of your notes and, and do it this way. But I just did it in my journal Bible. And I will begin to break down each scripture. Just what is, what is the author saying in this scripture? What is, this, what is God saying through this? And I'll begin to just write some thoughts down. And, 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 and I'll begin to do some background. I, I, there's a lot of different programs you could use. One of them, and it's a very simple, um, a lot of you probably use BibleGateway.com. And it's very simple. They've got a subscription. It's only $3.99 a month. And it gives you access to all kinds of commentaries and topical Bibles and, and different uh, different things that it's very cheap and it just kind of gives you access to all this and so what I will do is is I'm drawn to a certain passage whatever length it might be and I just want to learn about that passage I want to learn what's going on I want to learn the background I I've got this ac acronym that um, that I've developed it's kind of just like stepping up the bat for the learning and, and building the sermon so the BAT the B is background I want to find out all the background I can about this passage the historical background what's going on in the setting what's happening around uh, that that in in Israel at this time that that Samuel's being that Hannah's praying for a child and Samuel's being brought to the tabernacle and the, the the corruption that's going on and and what what's happening in all the, the, the historical background the grammatical background looking at the words what are the words meaning what's being said here what type of literature is it? Historical, the literary context, the author's cultural context. What's, uh, who's the writer? Well, who's the writer of First and Second Samuel? What's going on in that in that individual? What's happening? 
Um, and so we do a lot of background. What's, and just kind of wring that passage dry. Now, can you share all of this information in your sermon? No. But if you ever heard a preacher preach for 25, 30 minutes and you knew they told you everything they knew about that passage. Because they hadn't wrung it dry. They, you, they just gave you everything. They had nothing. If you asked them to go a few minutes longer, they would have nothing left. Because they haven't studied. They, had, they don't know everything they could find out about that passage. So wringing that dry. Find out everything you can about that. The A in bat, after you've done all the background, is the author's idea. Believe it or not, every author that wrote scripture had a reason they were writing it. It wasn't just random stuff they were putting down on parchment or, or having a scribe as they, they began to speak to them and the scribe write it down. They had a purpose, something they were trying to communicate. And so figuring out what is that idea, what's the exegetical idea that's being presented in this passage? What's the author trying to communicate? I think it's important we understand what the author is trying to communicate before we launch off into something and give the people, give the congregation an idea that, that Paul was saying this when he really wasn't saying this. I use in, uh, in life preaching, I use an example um, of the scripture we hear continually. You, you hear it most of the time on Wednesday nights in the middle of the week with hardly anybody in the congregation. And somebody will step up to the pulpit and look out there and a little discouraged because there's hardly anybody there. And they'll just say, well, thank the Lord that whether two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So it's just a few of us here, but we know that God's here. That's not what that scripture means. It sounds good. And, okay, we might be able to stretch the context and make it fit that. That's not what it's about. If that's what it's about that requires at least two or three, then when I'm at home by myself and I need to get a hold of God, i got to find somebody else to pray with me? That would be a sad condition, but I've found that in my life. I can seek God and find God, and God is with me when I'm by myself. So it can't be what the Scriptures were saying. In fact, that Scripture is all about settling disputes and confrontation between people and, and, and correction. And, and when you do that, you need to bring a couple of people along with you. And if you will believe and agree on something, God, if you're two or three of you, God will be there with you to help you. So we need to first understand that's what that scripture means. And when you do, it's incredible. When you find out what the scripture really means and what the author is really trying to convey, it adds way more impact to the message you preach, even if you don't preach that as your main thought, but you then begin to apply and, and bring that into our context, there's such power and authority when we preach the word for what it was meant to be said. So finding not only the background, but then the author's idea, and then the T in bat is just basically 21st century context. Because you can't stop in this history and you can't stop with what the author said. Now we have to figure out 
okay, how then do, does this fit in the 21st century? So along with my passage breakdown and wringing that thing dry, what is this? What's, what's, all, what's going on in the context? What's happening? Then we add the truths that are being taught in the Scripture. What is being said here that is true that we, that we need to know and understand? And then alongside the historical context and the truths, then to begin writing comments that detail how these truths would translate in the 21st century. And specifically, your audience that you're going to be preaching to. How does that truth apply to my audience? You can also be write down some ideas where you feel the sermon should go. What, what are some ideas you feel the sermon should convey? If you need, if you need the mind mapping, whatever, whatever tool it is that you could kind of help lay this all out. But after you've done all the historical background and wrung that passage dry and Everything you've just, you're exploring down every rabbit trail to see where this idea leads to and that and that leads to and, and, and what was going on in, in, in Shiloh and, and the wickedness of the, and you're just kind of following all. Now, if you've all that and the truths and, the, and, and how does this translate in the 21st century and maybe you've got all kinds of stuff or how do we make a sermon out of that? How do I organize this? How do I get this and let it make sense? I've got a lot of good stuff. And in the midst of all that searching and all that studying, you've probably got some really good things that you would, man, I hope this fits into my sermon because this is really good. But now that you've got all that stuff, however you got it organized, however you got it laid out, however you got it written down, now it's time to consider what would unite all this? What would bring most of this together? And that would make sense when I present it. Which leads us to consider what I've called, and it's not unique with me. I'm going to reference this man's book several times in the next, next few minutes. Um, Donald Sanukian, he wrote a book called An Invitation to Biblical Preaching. It's one of the best um, non-apostolic books on just the foundation of basic Introduction to preaching. Um, there are some Trinitarian ideas in there, um, but for the most part, the foundation of all, it's one, it's one of the best that I've found, um, non-apostolic. Um, and he calls this, and that I've, I've adopted it, this one idea that ties everything together that you want to drive home, he calls it the take-home truth. What's that one thing you want your congregation to take home? And he says, our, you know, our sermons should not be a series of isolated comments or unconnected truths. Instead, they should have a progressive and orderly flow of ideas and be embodied in a single sentence that he calls the take-home truth. And that's where we got biblical sermons are shaped by Scripture. So the text then the passage that helps shape the idea or this take-home truth. You begin to ask yourself, in this passage, in this group of text, of scriptures that you read, and maybe you haven't even narrowed it down to the few verses you're going to read as a text, but you've got this passage you're working with. What's the most important idea or truth being communicated in that passage? What do you feel that is? Maybe it's driven a little bit by what you determined the author was trying to say. Maybe that becomes it, but... 
Maybe it's something else. What's the most important thing? Now, if you read through these first, really the first book of Samuel, the main idea that Samuel's trying to talk, the author's trying to talk about is basically the importance of godly leadership. Because the first part of 1 Samuel is contrasting Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, and Samuel. And then we got the contrast of Saul and David. So really, Samuel's all about this idea of the importance of godly leadership. But in this past, the passage that I've been studying, the first three, four chapters, to me, the importance was kind of this idea that surfaces this calling of Samuel and that he's becoming this prophet. And how is this happening? And then after you kind of determine what's this main uh, important truth, this important idea you want to talk about, then what's the solution? What's the answer that the text presents? Well, in the, in the whole scope of, the, of Samuel, we can say, well, godly leaders are called by God and surrendered to God. Hophni and Phinehas called by God. They weren't surrendered to God. Saul called by God. He wasn't surrendered to God. Samuel's called by God. He was surrendered to God. David was called by God. He was surrendered to God. So, so the answer kind of and, and the solution to the idea of how does Samuel call, how to become this prophet, his life was surrendered to the Lord, surrendered to the service of the Lord. So I kind of combined all those two in it and helped me develop my take-home truth. This, I want to develop this one idea that would encapsulate the focus and the purpose of the sermon. And so I looked in 1 Samuel 1 to 3, witnesses making of this Old Testament prophet, which was really the equivalent to the New Testament preacher. Thus my title, The Making of a Preacher. And I was drawn to the last part of chapter 3, and I decided this would be my text. That I'm going to let this narrative kind of drive the sermon, and it's going to culminate in this text where Samuel's finally established as this prophet of the Lord. See, in verse 19, I read my text last night, Samuel grew. There was this becoming. The Lord was with him. God was in control. He let none of his words fall to the ground. God was in control. All Israel knew he was established to be a prophet. Well, only God makes preachers. God was in control. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel. More of God being in control and making him. And then verse 1 of chapter 4, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Thus the culmination of this becoming of this prophet preacher. So I developed, um, hopefully part of this came through last night, at least one portion of it I really I, I, I brought back over and over. But this became, out of all that, this became, I, I developed one sentence that would be that one thing I wanted to get across and wanted everything to call on it. So hopefully some of this sounds familiar to you. I did do my job. This was my take-home truth. This is what I wanted you to leave with. In order to fulfill the calling of a preacher, God must be given complete control because only God makes preachers. Probably at least the only God makes preachers came through. Hopefully that did. Um, that that, that was the one thing that I saw that I wanted to unite all this stuff that I've been studying. And, and the one thing I wanted to get across and I wanted, and I wanted to, to give it direction and focus. Because I, I believe sermons need focus. 
That's why I've tried to teach our students that if you can do anything, just be focused up there. Don't worry about trying to be impressive and weave in all kinds of stuff and, and, and make it look like you've been preaching for 40 years. Just, just be focused. Just get across one thing. So we, we, see, we see this happen. Only God makes preachers. Um, I have to hurry through some of this. Let's go on to the, the third one. Biblical sermons are anchored to Scripture. This idea, this take-home truth, needs to stay anchored to Scripture, stays anchored to the sermon as a sermon unfolds. The importance of maintaining focus, building the sermon to have one main point. Now, I got some of this other terminology from Sanukian in that book also that I, I just really like. Um, every other point in your sermon, we always talk about um, we're three-point sermon preachers or four-point sermon preachers or whatever it is. What we really mean, and you've heard it, you've heard it well through, through the preaching that you, you've heard this week, that there's one, one thought. Last night, Brother, Brother Graham's take-home truth just happened to be his title, and he drove that home, right? Accomplishments in the days. He just put his take-home truth up on the screen. And sometimes your title echoes that take-home truth. That was, that was his one main point. My one main point had everything to do with only God makes preachers. But there were other points in my sermon. But I like to call those other points compliments. Because there's only one main point. One main take-home truth. Every other point is a compliment. Because every other point should support and build upon that take-home truth. It should put a magnifying glass. It should edify. It should build up. It should drive home. So as you settle on your main compliments, as I looked, and I, and I kind of let, I let the, the narrative actually do that. I picked out some major points of the narrative and let those uh, be my main compliments. But I wanted to make sure they, they've got to drive home this take-home truth. They've got to stay focused. So when you begin to develop your other points, your other compliments, you need to ask yourself, does this reflect the take-home truth? Does this go a direction that the take-home truth is going, or does it go another direction? Is it not focused? Is it focused? Is it scattered? Is it anchored to the text and the surrounding context? And again, I, just as I, the take-home truth was a complete sentence, and you want to you craft it, you want to take your time on that and, and not just throw words together, but really it, it changed several times in the development of the sermon. So I wanted, I wanted to say just... Just the right way. I recommend your main compliments. When you determine these are, the, these are the main things I want to say throughout as I drive through the sermon, I recommend those. And again, most of the time I'm talking to beginner preachers, but I want them to have this foundation. I recommend those being complete sentences too. One of my first, first main compliments was God makes preachers out of worshipers. My main compliment was not just worship. Because I can go a lot of different ways with worship. But I want to stay focused on God makes preachers out of worshipers. And I stepped off in some application outside the realm of preaching because I was trying to encapsulate everybody in the congregation that wasn't just preachers. But we've got to make sure that we stay, stay focused. We don't, we don't want to be too broad that we veer away. We drive off from our take-home truth. 
In order to fulfill the calling of a preacher, God must be given complete control because only God makes preachers. Um, the main compliments, and they're just seen throughout the narrative. First, God makes preachers out of worshipers. This idea of Hannah being a worshiper and, and then Samuel being a worshiper. God makes preachers out of those willing to serve. Samuel learned to serve in the tabernacle. God makes preachers out of messes, the, the corrupt priesthood. That was there, but God made Samuel still through that. Then God makes preachers out of those who value his word, how the word of God was so rare. But it was God speaking to Samuel, reestablishing his word. So how do you determine the main compliments? How do you determine those main points throughout your message? Um, you need to ask yourself, what, what do I need to explain from the text in Scripture? What do I need to explain? Sometimes we're so good at explanation that it takes over the message because we're explaining everything we've ever learned. We're given every bit of detail we've ever learned. We've got to make, we've got to hone it down a little bit. What do I need to talk about? What do I need to explain? What, what is essential for the listener to know in order to understand what God is saying? It, it just not inundating people with knowledge is, is knowledge doesn't necessarily produce godly behavior. Just giving people a bunch of knowledge doesn't necessarily produce godly behavior. Let's go to the last one. Biblical sermons clearly communicate Scripture's message. The sermon content echoes, reflects the message of the text, ultimately drives home that take-home truth. Every message and really every compliment that's in your message, every main point, should have exposition, illustration, application. Some of my students are nodding, so good. That, it's recognizable. Exposition, illustration, application. The idea, um, every main compliment. When I say exposition, when you've decided like, like that first point, God makes preachers out of worshipers. I'm going to show you how that fits in the text. I'm going to talk about the text. What does the scripture say? What does the text say about that? I'm going to exposit scripture. I'm going to give you understanding of the scripture. Then I'm going to, then I'm going to give you illustration. I've exposited. Now I'm going to give you illustration. I'm going to give you a pair of lenses that you can help see more clearly this truth. And then I'm going to make application. And I'm going to show you how this truth fits in the life of each audience member. Exposition, illustration. Application. Again, very basic, but we got to have the basics down. So I, I want to I I close here today, just in the next few minutes, but I want to talk specifically about application. And ask yourself, what does it look like in real life? The reason I do this is because I've seen a lot of beginner preachers. We like to use metaphors. We like, to, we like to talk about, and Jesus used wonderful metaphors in Scripture, parables. Many of the parables, wonderful metaphors. And we like to, we like to use um, church speak and metaphors when we're talking about truths. And I've seen, I've seen many, many young preachers who are learning to preach that they will leave the metaphor out there and expect everybody to understand what it means. We will talk about God being... God, he's my light and my salvation. Now, everybody should know what that means. That's scripture. It's a metaphor. But what does it mean that God is light? 
How does that make sense to my life? Is it just light? What is that? What does it look like in real life? Unless, and again, Sanukian says some of this. He said, unless the listeners get a mental picture of some real life situation, the biblical truth remains an abstraction. Relevancy is broader than application. Application implies this is what the listener is to do. Relevancy simply shows how the message connects to life. Our goal in speaking is to show how biblical truth bears on contemporary life. Our ultimate goal is not to teach the Bible to people. Tell them what the Bible says. Our ultimate goal is to teach how what the Bible says and how it fits in our lives. That's why we're teaching. That's why we're preaching. The reason we preach Genesis 11 and 12 is because God may come to some listeners that are listening to us and do the same thing to them he did to Abraham. Leave what's comfortable, what's familiar, and come with me without knowing the place I'm taking you to. Abraham didn't know where God was taking him. He he was told God would show him after he left. Got to show, how does this bear on contemporary life? How does this fit? Even though knowledge alone is irrelevant, it's nevertheless possible to develop a large following from knowledge-based, information-oriented ministry. The Athenians, Acts 17, the attitude of just wanting to learn something new. We need to do more than just share information. I'm about out of time. I'm going to skip ahead here. So how does it show up in real life? Here's some questions to ask yourself when to help you discover and present application. Number one, think where it would show up in your own life first. How have I experienced this? How am I experiencing it? Number two, run through an expanding grid of the various groups uh, and life circumstances that are in your audience. Visualize who's out there. How are they going to receive this? How would they hear this? And make sure you apply it to as many of those people as possible. Number three, develop mental pictures that apply the biblical concept, not just simply illustrate it. We do good at illustration. If, you're, if you were going to preach from 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 10, and you're kind of your, your topic you're going to preach from, the love of money can be your downfall. The love of money can be your downfall. That's your take-home truth. You want people to know that don't, don't have a love of money because it could be your downfall. A good illustration might be the story of King Midas. Everything he touched turned to gold. And then all that happened there. Another story could be about Yusuf the Terrible Turk, who in the 1940s, he came to America to participate in a heavyweight wrestling tournament. And one by one, he defeated everybody. He got $10,000, a large sum of money at that time. He didn't want a check. He didn't want, he, he didn't want, he didn't trust the system and said he wanted, um, he wanted gold coins, $10,000 worth of gold coins. He bought a money belt and he stuffed the 65 pounds of gold coins in the pocket of his belt. They put around his waist. The ship that he was on headed back home offered to store the gold in the ship safe, but Yusuf was worried about sticky fingers, so he preferred to have the gold on his person at the whole time. Nobody will mess with Yusuf the Terrible Turk. A few days out to sea, however, an engine malfunction caused the, sh- the ship to be stranded. Another vessel was sent to transfer all the passengers on board, and during the transfer, while the boats were swaying on the waves, Yusuf tried to jump on board the new vessel, but he missed by a few inches and plunged into the water below. And that's the last anyone's ever saw of Yusuf the Terrible Turk as his heavy belt took him straight to the bottom of the ocean. Now, after telling that story, I warned your people, the love of money could be your downfall. And someone in the audience thinks to themselves, 
Well, I'll remember that next time I win a wrestling championship and crossing the Atlantic on a ship wearing a money belt filled with gold. It was a good illustration. It's probably a good illustration to share in a sermon. But it just illustrated the truth. It did not tell the audience how they could apply the truth. Instead, I need to show them, and I need to think of my audience, and how can I apply this? Maybe I could tell them that working 80 hours a week to make money at the expense of your family or extensive gambling or playing the lottery in hopes of a windfall at the expense of your family's economics or incurring large credit card debt in pursuit of a lifestyle or, or withholding your tithe and experiencing God's displeasure or arguing over inheritance funds at the expense of family relationships. Now that bears on contemporary life. So make your applications specific. Then the last one, the number four, make your application detailed and extended, not vague and brief. We have that expression in English. Do I have to draw you a picture for this? The answer is yes, preacher, draw me a picture. We, we want to treat our audience, and I mean you can stand. We want to treat our audience with respect. They're smart people. You all are smart people. When you stand before a congregation, you stand before smart people. We ought to treat them that way. Not treat them like they're dumb. Not talk down to them. They're smart people. But as a preacher, your job is to show them how that applies to their life. Don't leave everything out in metaphor land, illustration land. Illustrations are good. It puts the, it puts the glasses on. They can see it through a different lens, different angle. But we need to tell our people this is how you apply this to your life. This is how you act this out. This is how it bears on your life. So biblical sermons are, they begin with Scripture, shaped by Scripture, anchor to scripture and clearly communicate scripture's message so hopefully some of that was helpful to you um, and I, I, again I, like brother Jones said I want to be brother Cole I want to be a better preacher I want to always be learning always be growing it's a sacred task we've been tasked with and we want to communicate scripture clearly and show people how it can change their life amen why don't we just thank the Lord? Just lift your hands and thank the Lord for the calling. Thank the Lord for his presence. Thank the Lord for his goodness to us. God, we're so thankful. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the calling. God, we want to preach your word. We want to declare it with truth. We want to declare it with certainty. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take a few minutes break. And greet one another. We'll take about five to eight minutes or so. We're just a couple minutes behind schedule. We'll come back about five, six minutes.